BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome to Just the Truth Podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis and back with me today for the next discussion about the reliability of scripture, the proof of the resurrection. It's my good friend, Matt Tench, who is an attorney and uh, really just studies apologetics. And I think it's so important for Christians to understand how to have a rational explanation for our faith, because we know from scripture that we need to have an answer for the hope that lies within us and to be able to present a defense. And so um, I've asked Matt to come back for recurring conversations. And I'm so grateful, by the way, that all of the people who listened uh, last week, I got so much response um, from how much you loved this type of discussion. And I'm really grateful for that because we talk about politics all the time. And that's really important. We talk about the culture. That's really important. But we also need to always bring everything back to the biblical worldview and have, again, that defense and be able to have that rational explanation. So. So, uh, Matt Tench, thanks so much for joining me again here on Just the Truth Podcast. Jenna, I appreciate you having me back, and I couldn't agree more. I think as we approach uh, issues like politics and culture, and we say, well, why do we believe this? And we base it upon scripture. We need to be able to back up the reason, not only the faith, but the reason why we uh, use this as our approach. Absolutely. And, you know, I had um, a couple of comments on social media. Uh, last week that said from a few people, well, I believe in God. I don't need to go out and defend anything. You know, the Bible speaks for itself. And while it's true that maybe uh, you who are listening believe in in scripture, believe in the gospel, you're a Christian, um, part of then sharing that faith and fulfilling the Great Commission, which is to uh, teach truth to the world and uh, share the gospel and share the hope that we have. That's ultimately the purpose of our lives is to first and foremost worship God, uh, enter into that relationship with the Lord ourselves and trust in the truth of the gospel, but then um, encourage others and share that with others so that they can discover that truth as well. And so we need to be able to rationally explain our faith and not just say, hey, I'm good, but I don't care about anybody else. So part of this, right. even if you are a Christian already, part of this in the study of apologetics for those listening is to be able to answer those questions, have those defenses, not in a in an argumentative way, but in um, in a way that allows us to uh, to not just have the trite, um, you know, maybe memes or Instagram posts, but to be able to say, here's the reasons why I have a rational faith and I believe in the truth of the reliability of Scripture and the proof of the resurrection as my hope and as my foundation for understanding the world to which I'm presented. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? 
Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So, Matt, as we left off last week, um, we were talking about, of course, the proof of the reliability of Scripture and the proof of um, the historical, literal event of the resurrection. Um, so just pick up where we left off. Sure. And and to reiterate what you said, I mean, it, it perfect. it's a perfectly acceptable to to base your faith on that experiential relationship that you have with Jesus. But when you go out and witness to other people, um, it to not have any kind of explanation as to why it makes sense historically and rationally, it doesn't separate you from any other faith in the world. And and we're lucky in the fact that we have not only conservative Christian New Testament scholars, but skeptics, atheists, liberal scholars who will attest to the historical accuracy of what we're talking about here. And that's how we determine anything is historically accurate. We talked last time about how how we know anything about Alexander the Great or Tiberius Caesar. And we looked at how far away from the event these things, these writings come to us. And what we want when we try to determine uh, something historically is we want multiple uh, attestations to the event as close to the event as possible. And the reason why we use Paul here is because um, out of the 13 books that bear his name, uh, there's seven or six or six that the skeptics will accept as authoritative historically, meaning that we know who Paul was. We know that he was in the right place at the right time to have this information. And last time we talked about the Gospels, which are similar to uh, Greco-Roman biographies in many ways. Um, but now we're talking about occasional letters that Paul wrote to the early Christian church. And so we're going to go through this and say, now, what's the point of what we're doing here? We made the point last time that how we know anything about these other historical figures is these these uh, accounts that are written as close to the event as possible. Now, what we're trying to prove here is not only can we beat that evidence that we get for other historical figures, but we can get right up into the time of the Christian crucifixion within six months after the event, which historically is is impeccable. Absolutely. I mean, and and as we talked about last time, Matt, um, even in current trials and in things that we do in the modern era, we accept testimony from witnesses years after the event. I mean, by the time you actually get through uh, a lot of, you know, the discovery process, the pretrial stuff, the negotiations back and forth. I mean, there are times when um, the actual trial and when witnesses, eyewitnesses are testifying uh, in front of the fact finder, either the judge or the jury, um, often that can be um, years later. And that's still, uh, you go through the same analysis in terms of assessing the reliability and credibility of the witnesses, even if it's years after the date that the event occurred. So Correct. when we're talking about, you know, six months, that's, that's especially in history, uh, really, really close to the event. But even in yes. modern terms, um, that would be more than acceptable in a court of law by the highest standard in law for proof. Okay, so to get into this, we're moving away from the old approach that the apologetic was done, basing it on the the date that the Gospels were written. Mark is our earliest Gospel account. So what we do now is we move to Paul Paul's writings, because he's accepted by 
the most skeptical New Testament scholars, and we look to two two books mainly that they accept as historically authoritative. We look at First Corinthians and then Galatians one and two. Galatians one and two in the original writing wasn't separated like we have it now. It was just one continuous letter. But what we start at is say, okay, now Paul in First Corinthians um, fifteen tells the the people of Corinth that. When I came to you, I gave to you what I was given. And so Paul is writing 1 Corinthians about what he said to the early church when he came there. And so we know that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around 55 AD. So when did he get there? We know this, oddly enough, through some other historical research. There has been um, artifacts found that document that when Paul came to Corinth, the scriptures relate in Acts 18.12. The Gallio was acting as proconsul during the time that Paul was there. And so the, the, the cool thing about this fact is that these um, city-state rulers, they serve for one-year terms. And so we have artifacts that document this historical fact that Gallio was the proconsul during the time Paul um, visited the church. Um, so that was around 51 to 52 AD. So now we're plus 21 years after the event, the, the cross. And so Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 says, I gave you as of first importance what I was given. And so what we have to ask is, when did Paul receive what he told the early Christian church? So Richard Bauckham of Cambridge University agrees that this is a consensus opinion among scholars. And it's that Paul received this material around 35 AD, which puts us plus five years after the cross. Because we know Paul had his Damascus Road experience two to three years after the cross. And if you go to Galatians 1, verses 15 through 19, Paul essentially says, after I had been introduced to Jesus myself, I didn't go directly to Jerusalem to talk to the other apostles. I went up to Arabia. And then three years later, then I went to Jerusalem to see Peter, and he saw James, Jesus' brother, and he spent 15 days, about two weeks, with Peter and James to talk about this account. And, and what they, if they weren't talking about it principally, we know they were talking about it in some context, because the whole theme of the book of Galatians shows you how Peter and Paul had this discussion about what they were preaching and what, what the gospel message is it's it's basically this is the gospel get it right don't change it it's grace through faith and and this is this is the context of the conversation they had so going back and looking at the math we see jesus crucified at 30 a.d paul having his domestic damascus road experience around 32 a.d and then paul three years later as galatians 1 18 tells us he went three years later up to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James. That's 35 AD. Paul spends 15 days with them there. If you go back to the Galatians 1.18, there's a word in there where it says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. In the Greek, that word see is historesi. And, and in a lot of modern English translate translations, they butcher it. But what it essentially means is that 
I'm going to check it out myself. I'm not going to take anybody's word for it. I'm going to go investigate it myself. So Paul wanted to go to Peter and James and investigate their account himself. Galatians 2.1 then goes on to say 14 years later. So after this, 14 years later, he goes back again with Barnabas. It took Titus with him, and they went back to recommunicate what the gospel was that they were preaching. You know, before they left, before Paul left, he met with Peter and James and said, you know, I want to tell you what happened to me. You guys tell me what happened to you and make sure that we're, we're all getting this right, that we're all on the same page. So after that, he goes back up again 14 years later, around 48 AD, to go meet with them again. Now, what was the purpose of this second meeting? It was to communicate them in Galatians 2.2, communicates to them the gospel that he preached among the Gentiles because he didn't want to run in vain, meaning he didn't want his message to be wrong. So you go on to Galatians 2.6, and and did they add anything to what Paul was saying at the time? Galatians 2.6 tells us, but of these whom seemed to be some, somewhat whatsoever they were, and maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man person, no man's person, for they seemed to be somewhat in conference, added nothing to me. So this message that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, he goes back again 14 years later after his first encounter with them, where he spent two weeks with them, to double check. And, they, and he says that they added nothing to my message. They were preaching the same message. Galatians 2.9 is telling you that whether it's from James or Peter or John, whoever you want to look to, it's the same message. So if you don't like what I'm saying, if you don't like what Paul is saying, go ask Peter. If you don't like Peter, go ask James. Because what we are teaching, what we are the, the gospel message that we are preaching is is all the same message. Mm, and that's such a great point, Matt, because I think a lot of people um, have this idea that this is just a message, like almost like either a fortune cookie or a um, or some kind of religious message that's just a good um, a good story or a good principle for you know how to live your life. But really, the point of the gospel is this is a fact-based uh, testimony. This is something that is not just, you know, Paul's interpretation of something or his viewpoints or, you know, it's it's not opinion-based. This right. is fact-based. And we have to distinguish that when we're looking at the truth of God and the reliability of scripture, that this isn't someone's opinion. Th- these are facts. This is something that the apostles who were there and the disciples of Jesus, they testify to because they were eyewitnesses. And so we're going to have to take a quick break right here, but I'm going to be right back with more on Just the Truth podcast with Matt Tench. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
we're back on Just the Truth Podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis, and I am here with my good friend, Matt Tench, who is a fellow attorney, and we're talking about the truth of the historicity and the evidence of the literal historical resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, Matt, when we left off, um, you were talking about um, the the Gospels and how Paul is saying, you know, we're all saying the same thing because this is, a, we're, we're eyewitnesses to this factual event. Yes. Yeah. And and up until then, we we are at this point, and, and I think it's it's beneficial to pause here and reflect and I think the point can't be overstated. When we look to verify anything historically, there's a certain method that you have to follow as a historian in order to verify any kind of historical event. And again, we need multiple independent testimonies, preferably eyewitnesses, and as close as possible to the event that we, we can get. And so what we, to step back again and to kind of review what we are trying to attest to which is the, the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is what separates the Christian faith from all other faiths. And, and even in-house, this is the cornerstone of your faith. You know, we have a lot of people in, in the apologetic world who want to argue over creation or or those who, who look to Revelation and try to determine at what point in history that took place or is going to take place. But really, the central issue is, did Jesus raise from the dead? And so that's why we want this topic to be examined closely, because it's not, it's not just easy believism. You know, like there is a, an experiential relationship as a Christian that you have when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which is valid. But in order to to go out and witness like the Great Commission tells us to do, to go out and, and preach the gospel to the four corners of the earth, not only, you know, relate that experiential relationship in your own testimony, but this is the greatest time in history to be able to do something like that because we have information now that we're going over now that 30 to 40 years ago was laughed at. But over the last 30 to 40 years, the research done on this topic has changed even the most ardent skeptics who are scholars in the New Testament studies who publish, who who are well-respected, people like Bart Ehrman and others like that, who accept this as historically reliable. And so up until this point, we've been, we have, we have come, you know, we, we started off talking about the gospels that were written, you know, Several years after the event, some you know, Mark was written plus forty after the event. Matthew fifty, Luke fifty-five, and John sixty to sixty-five years after the event. But what we've done today is now we've been talking up to five years. We've gotten into five years after the event that we're talking about historically, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, um, and this is something, you know, again, where I want to reiterate the point that you just made about how this is the cornerstone of faith and why it separates the Christian faith from all other faiths. Because if you look at other faiths, and and we'll have to get into this, Matt, in another discussion about what separates um, specifically 
the Christian faith and the evidence for Christianity as exclusive to all other religions, because there is this viewpoint that um, there are multiple pathways to God and it's just whatever one you prefer. And, you know, we all need to live good lives. And basically something like that, you know, gets us um, in harmony with the world and we're basically good people. Well, the, you know, that type of universalist mentality, meaning like there's a universal uh, one viewpoint to all truth um, is is completely missing the point of what Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, yes. and the life, and that is reflected in the whole truth of the counsel of God, the full scripture, and also just reflected in the reality of the empirical world that we live in, because um, there is exclusive truth. Either you believe in the historical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he is who he says he is, which is our Lord and Savior, and you accept the premise of the gospel message, and you accept this as a literal historical event, and then there are implications for that, right? Which is then that everything else that contradicts that, every other viewpoint, is necessarily false. You can't have two opposing inconsistent philosophies or um, ideas about an event at, at mutually exclusive be simultaneously true. I mean, it's it's that's one of the things that, you know, Matt and I, I do in court, which is to say, OK, if this claim that or this proposition is true, then necessarily it means that whatever is in conflict with that premise is not true. You can't have someone who is both guilty and innocent of the same crime simultaneously. It, it just doesn't work like that. And we know that logically. So the reason this is the cornerstone of our faith in Christianity is because we have to start with the resurrection, because if it is true and if you understand the literal historical event, then the implications of that necessarily mean that the Christian worldview is true. And then we can start talking about creation. We can start talking about the end of the world in Revelation views on eschatology. But this whole idea, which is called, of course, soteriology, the study of salvation and what is essential to understanding the truth of the gospel is the first thing. And you have to decide individually. And then also as you're sharing your faith with others, they have to decide in their own mind the exact same question that Jesus asked of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? That is the fundamental question of the Christian faith. And every person, no matter what your faith perspective is, no matter what your politics are, that's the central question. And you have to answer that because if you only think that Jesus was a good teacher or he was one of the prophets, the same as Muhammad, the same as, you know, anyone else, he was just a man. He was not divine. He was not the uh, the eternal God. And he is not uh, living today, sitting at the right hand of God, the father then that is an implication for your life. And so it's either yes, you believe it or no, you don't. And there's there really is no other alternative. And that's why, you know, we can talk about all kinds of other religions. But for Christianity, every single person has to answer that question for themselves. And that's why we're starting here. And that's why, you know, Matt's explanations of why the historicity and the the proof of this literal event matters. Because if you can show that to your friends and your family and show this is a literal historical event, they can't deny that proof. So then that has implications on how you respond to that question of who do you say that Jesus is? Yes. So 
up until this point, we've been dealing within five years, which again is already historically impeccable, but we can move closer. How do we, how do we move closer? We will look at 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3 and following. What we know about the way that is written, well, you know, Paul confers with Peter and James about 35 AD, but Peter and James had to have it before then in order to give it to Paul. And so when we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following, we we know through the, the, the scholars that do the work in this area that this reads in a Greek style that, that that's like a fingerprint. I mean, it, it kind of in a way, not not exactly, but you might think of it in a way like that we there it, in English, you, you we write rhyming sentences and stuff like that. Well, not that this rhymes. But it was written in a certain way by the early church because the early church, most of the people were illiterate. So they had to write in a way that was easily memorizable so that those people could go on and teach others. And when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, it says, For when I deliver to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, and then the twelve. That writing there, we know, is is an early form of writing that dates right back up until the earliest part of the church. So by the time we get to examining this style of writing, we're right on top of the event. In fact, Larry Hurtado, the head of uh, the religion department at the University of Edinburgh, says coming right out of the gate in 30 A.D two doctrines had to be present or there would be no Christian church. Deity and resurrection. Of course, if there's a resurrection, there's also a death. So deity, death, resurrection. And everywhere you look in the Gospels, that's the Gospel defined. Deity, death, resurrection. So, and then James D.G. Dunn even goes further than that. He's from the University of Durham, who's as influential as any Jesus scholar today. And he says, this latest Greek style form it, as an early creed was present in the early church. The latest it was put into form from event to form was six months after the cross. And so you might be asking yourself up until this point, well, we you've talked about, you know, multiple um, uh, separate attestations, you know, where this is coming from multiple sources. Bart Ehrman, who we've mentioned a lot in this series on the resurrection, is one of the harshest critics of the New Testament. He says in his book, now he's from Princeton and a Moody Bible Institute graduate, he says, we can get this back within one to two years after the cross. In his book, Did Jesus Exist? He says, how many independent arguments do we have for the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection event? In his list, Bart Ehrman cites 11 independent sources for the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, which, I mean, again, that's a lot, the, actually. Yeah, yeah. To, to to illustrate the point here, in, in retrospect to the other historical figures we've discussed up to this point, we're getting right back to on top of the event that's being um, told, and we're getting it from several, several different sources. 
That's a great point, Matt, when you talk about how um, important it is that 11 is actually a big number, because, again, you know, relating this to proof and relating this to what's commonly accepted in modern terms, when we uh, go into court and you have um, you know, even sometimes just one witness, one eyewitness, sometimes you have one witness and a couple of uh, corroborating um, different types of proof. You have um, physical evidence, you know, you have some of these other things for a historical literal event that happened over 2000 years ago to have um, all of these sources and all of these corroborating sources. Not only is that incredibly compelling, but also we don't have any sources that contradict that. There's no uh, there's no testamentary evidence. There's nothing that's evidentiary. You know, we haven't found um, anything that's the, you know, the the body of Jesus, for example. I mean, we don't have yes. anything um, that's contradictory. So so I've heard some skeptics um, like I have a friend who would say, well, you know, unless there's a video of you know of this, which is like, <laughs> yeah. OK, from 2000 years ago. And we again, we have proof beyond any and all reasonable doubt. And that term reasonable is key in that phrase. Um, then we still we don't have video evidence even in modern terms of everything. Yeah. And yet right. we prove this beyond any reasonable doubt. And so um, so that goes back to how important it is to show there's nothing that has ever been inconsistent, not, not just with this, but with any of the truth claims in Scripture. But talk about why that's so important um, as well, just from a, a proof based standpoint. Yeah, well, I, I think it's it's funny because. Not funny, I should say funny. I mean, it's 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 noteworthy that I find many people today are happy to agree that there is a God, that God exists. But in our pluralistic society, even some within the church itself is saying, well, when you have to narrow it down to Jesus is the only way, the only uh, source of, of, you know, eternal life, then they have a problem with that. Um, it, I, I've heard prominent um, uh, uh, Christians in, in popular culture say this kind of thing, like there's many ways to heaven, there's, there's many ways to God. But when you get to this point, this is where the, the, the heat comes in. But the, the thing that we have going for us is, again, the Jesus Seminar, which is a very critical liberal group, says if you have just two sources for something, that makes the proclamation much more likely to be historical. And Paul, Paul, Paul Minor, professor of ancient history from Western Michigan University, says that many things in the ancient world depend on one witness and two make an event unimpeachable. And so you virtually have no dispute over people who study this stuff for a living. These are scholars who publish in peer-reviewed journals on New Testament scholarship. And so they attest to this stuff. In fact, um, E.P. Sanders from Duke University, he gives a list of well-accepted historical events, and he calls himself a liberal. And in his list of well-accepted, irreducible minimum historical facts, he says, the following is a historical fact. The earliest disciples saw the risen Jesus. I don't know how exactly they saw him, but they saw him. And so mm-hmm. then you get to the, the, the question of, well, then why don't they why don't they believe you know what can they say if they're accepting this as a historical fact then why don't they believe well there's two issues there as historians they just say listen i'm a historian i'm a skeptic i i can't accept 
supernatural explanations for an event to take place. But we also know, you know, from different studies, and we touched on this a little bit last time, that people, they don't disbelieve on a factual basis. Right. Many people who are hostile to God are hostile to God and therefore Jesus and the story because of an, an emotional trauma of some kind, probably some hypocrite in the church, which guess what? It's full of. And I have been myself. And so right, or the things. or the implications. They they yes. say, okay, I don't want to believe um in I don't want to believe this is You're fact, right. not because there's not enough proof, but because yeah. I still want to do whatever I want to do or I, um, you know, or well, then that would mean that my parents who aren't believers, then, you know, I would I would have to deal with that and that type yeah. of emotional trauma or, yeah. you know, maybe their parents have already passed away and they're saying, um, you know, and they they died as unbelievers. And so what does that mean in terms of implications for eternal life? So, I mean, there are so many reasons why people reject the truth of the gospel, but you're right. There's a difference between not accepting it based on an evidentiary basis versus an emotional basis. And we have to distinguish that. Um, But we're almost out of time here, Matt. So um, we're going to have to wrap up for today. This is such a great conversation. We're going to be continuing these conversations with Matt Tench. And um, I'm really, really grateful that he's willing to give us his time uh, weekly to go through all of this, because these foundations are so, so important to uh, the implications of everything else that we talk about and analyze. uh, All of this is so important. So um, Matt, thanks so much for joining me today on Just the Truth podcast, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. Happy Easter. 